0: Hello, and welcome back. Now, in part one of our Global Health Conversation, we talked a lot about this idea that health is less of an individual issue and more of a collective problem. And our guests in that conversation proved that when we work together, when we try to heal and help one another, we save lives. So make sure you don't miss that episode. Meanwhile, as I've shared with you before, I love this idea of putting our heads together, joining forces and basically becoming Voltron for change. So today, I'm gonna continue exploring global health by putting the spotlight on some action leaders. These are folks on the ground providing healthcare access, both physical and mental, in some remote places, including right here in the United States. I wanted to know a few things. What's it like to provide healthcare in places where inequity is a problem? How do you globalize an issue that has so many nuances within each government, each system, and each community? How do you facilitate mental health access in a community that doesn't know it desperately needs it? To answer some of these questions, I sat down with Juan Acosta, a mental health advocate and regional manager at CalHOPE Warm Line at the Mental Health Association of San Francisco. He began his work really young, accumulating over 200 hours of community service at age 15. He's also a New York Times bestselling author for a book he co-authored with Lady Gaga. Yeah, Lady Gaga, called Channel Kindness, Stories of Kindness and Community. After Juan, we'll hear from Dr. Kerry Joes Felix. He works as a chief surgeon at Doctors Without Borders and has been with the organization since 2016. He spent time offering his services all over the world, from his native home in Haiti to the Congo in Africa. Welcome to Force Multiplier. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. So you have a book with Lady Gaga. I saw you kicking it with Selena Gomez and the First Lady at the White House. So (laughs) I just want to start by saying congratulations on your life, Juan.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Now, I I know things didn't start this way. Can you take me back to some of your early days? Tell me where you were born and raised, uh, some of your early home and school experiences.
1: Great. Well, I was born in Jalisco, Mexico, and I came to this country at age two. Uh, So growing up, I grew up in Woodland, California, and growing up here was quite interesting because it's a small town, so everybody knows one another. And because I immigrated to this country, I didn't know the English language when I first arrived. And I had to learn it throughout grade school, which put me through some barriers and communication with my classmates, with my teachers. And I started to get made fun of uh, for those things. And I was also being labeled things in regards to my sexuality prior to me being able to acknowledge it myself. So that's when a little bit of my mental health journey began and just why I got into the work that I do today.
0: We all have so many parts to our identities and you've hinted at a few pieces already, but what parts of yourself and your identity are you comfortable with and fully embracing now that you weren't so able to do as a kid?
1: Yeah, I think living authentically as a gay man has been one of the things that I'm most proud of today it brought me a lot of fear and a lot of inner conflict to even be able to name that out to people, to my parents, to my friends. I felt like I had to repress and uh, hide a lot of who I was in order to be living in a society that I felt was not meant for people like me.
0: This feeling, this internal tension, this feeling of repression that you just described, how did that show up in your life? Yeah, it manifested in
1: many ways. And I, I genuinely believe it did in every aspect of my life, even with my parents. I remember I built this barrier in communicating with them. I was trying to push my my own family away because I didn't want to feel like I was too attached if they were to turn their back on me when I came out to them. So I, I didn't share a lot with my parents. And it, I also didn't share because I saw them struggling as well to put food on the table, to pay for our bills because they were working day and night as immigrants in this country to provide for my siblings and I. I felt stomach aches showing up to school. I didn't want to be in class because I knew I was going to get bullied by my peers. It wasn't a great feeling. And I chose to stay home often so that I wouldn't interact with people in school or outside of school because I knew it was going to put me in the fire zone that I was going to be a target to the people
0: around me. Yeah. I have this image of just walls between you and your peers at school, walls between you and your own family, walls within yourself. I grew up with a mother who worked really, really hard to make the road a bit smoother for me, and I can identify with withholding some of my own needs so as not to be a burden. Definitely. Uh so I really I really connect with that. That said, how did your parents react when you Remove that wall and, and revealed that part of yourself to them.
1: Honestly, it took me a while to do so. I was in high school, I think, when I had built up the courage to do so. Uh, I just didn't want to feel a lot of their disappointment. Thankfully, when I did come out to them, they were really accepting and embracing. My dad had a couple of uh, questions to try and understand, but he is the sweetest man and he's supportive of me and... He's proud and I'm proud to just be able to have this relationship with them. And I also recognize that my story isn't the same story of every other LGBTQ person and that people are at times kicked out of their homes and face many more barriers when coming out.
0: What were some of the spaces where you started to feel more comfortable connecting with this part of your identity and starting this healing process for you. Who who did help you? Who did you run to first?
1: Yeah, I honestly, when I was going through it, when I was deep, like in the dark, I did not know where to go. And that is why I got into advocacy. I found an opportunity to join a youth council locally at a nonprofit here in my town. And I started doing a lot of volunteer work, a lot of community service. You joined a youth council in your town. How old were you? I was 13 when I started. Just doing that community
0: service was really beneficial to my own mental health. At the time in your life where you didn't necessarily feel fully supported based on the timeline you shared, you end up volunteering to try to support others. Talk to me a little bit more about that. That may not be obvious to a lot of people.
1: Yeah. For me... That moment was about me feeling like I didn't belong in the community and wanting to feel like I belonged in the community. And joining that youth council was the opportunity for me to belong in the community by trying to have a positive impact with other people. Because I knew that we were all in that council with one purpose, and it was to support one another and support the other youth in our community.
0: I want to talk about the role of culture in supporting the LGBTQ community. You said it was some of the lyrics in Lady Gaga's Born This Way that really helped you be your true self. What was it about that music, those lyrics that resonated so deeply with you?
1: Yeah, I think with Gaga, I I always liked her performance art, but that album came out in middle school at a point where i was really struggling with my mental health i had a lot of suicidal thoughts and feelings at the time because i was being bullied almost every day in school and when that song came out it just kind of reaffirmed that it was okay to be myself and in this small town that i live in there wasn't a lot of lgbtq plus folks and there wasn't that representation and that was really isolating but when i see and hear music with these lyrics of you being beautiful in your way and that doesn't matter if you're gay, it really spoke to me at that point. And it gave me kind of that light amidst all the darkness that I was
0: surrounded by. Someone seemingly so far away, you know, connected so closely to you and, and broke through some of those walls you had erected to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you end up hearing that song and then I'm reading about you as co-author of a book with, with Lady Gaga. How did that begin?
1: I was looking for every opportunity to stay involved in community work. And I saw an opportunity to join Channel Kindness, which is Lady Gaga's extension of her Born This Way Foundation. And they were looking for an inaugural cohort for this new platform about storytelling and kindness and community and I applied in my head. I was like, there's no way they're going to choose me. You know, I'm in Woodland, like a small town. Like, it's just not going to work out, but I'm just going to take the risk. And I applied and to my surprise, I was accepted. And years later, I wrote a story for the platform about my journey in drafting a historic LGBTQ plus proclamation for my
0: hometown that made history. Tell me about that proclamation. What is the proclamation that you wrote?
1: Yeah. So prior to moving to San Francisco where I pursued my higher education, I wanted to address the LGBTQ plus community here in Woodland where I grew up because I didn't have that message of acceptance or belonging. And I wanted to change that for the young people that were going to be growing up here. So I emailed the city manager at the time and I was like, How can we get the city council to proclaim June as Pride Month? And they said, well, we need language for a proclamation. And I, was, I had just turned 21 at the time, and I had no clue about any language for a proclamation. So I stayed up all night kind of figuring stuff out, looking at things on the internet, and I did it. And I emailed it to them, and they took it up to their city hall meeting, and I went to speak during public comment and all of that, people opposing it, and it passed unanimously for
0: the first time in the town's history. Wow. What did it feel like to hear that opposition and to have the proclamation ultimately pass? Yeah, I
1: think hearing the opposition was something that I knew was going to happen just because of the things that I had undergone in this town. And... To my surprise, there was also a lot of people speaking in favor of it. It was just so beautiful to see. And I didn't think much of the opposition in that moment. I was there to do one thing and I wanted to make sure it got done. And just when it passed and I saw everybody else like near me cry and hug each other and have their like pride flags, it was just a moment. And I think that's still my favorite moment to this day of just being able to do that because... For my inner child, it was a full circle moment of kind of something that I was shamed for so much. And now in our present day, they have like
0: a pride week, a pride parade, and it's completely 360. That's tremendous. And it's also, for so many folks, they get that moment elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And, And so they're accepted in a community they weren't born into. You got that feeling in your hometown. That's great, man. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I recently had a conversation on this podcast with Amanda Ryan-Smith. She's at the Trevor Project running development. And she was telling me how there are over 200 harmful policies targeting LGBTQ folks proposed this year alone, 2022. So you've got this front row seat with the commander in chief, I mentioned the White House in passing earlier, but you were part of the first ever Youth Mental Health Action Forum at the White House. What was the purpose of the forum? What was your role? Give me some deets. Yeah,
1: so the forum was put in in partnership with MTV and the White House, and it brought together 30 young people to create a mental health campaign that was going to address uh, relevant issues in our community and our, my campaign, along with my team, was around intersectionality and mental health, how different aspects of our identity impact our mental health, the way we have access to care, and how we approach mental health support and care. And we all, all 30 of us created these campaigns, and we all presented it to a variety of media and brands so that they could come together to create and put these campaigns into action along with the government.
0: I'm picturing, like, a Avengers-style scene with, you know, all the Avengers versus, like, the villains in the various movies. And, And on one side, I see these proposed exclusionary laws. And on the other, I see you, you know, and I see Lady Gaga, and I see these mental health advocacy campaigns. Where do you see the field right now? Do you feel like we're moving in the right direction in terms of the politics? Does it feel like we're moving backwards? What's your take?
1: I think it's a mixture of both. I believe that there is progress that has definitely been made. And that, you know, just having conversations around intersectionality and mental health and having more people that look like society itself being represented and speaking to these issues has been great. And I think the issue that we've been encountering is that there has been a lot of conversations and not enough action. And when there's these policies that are impacting and targeting communities, we are letting history repeat itself. Maybe not in the same exact way, but history is repeating itself. And what we need to do is to ensure that we, yes, are fostering these conversations, but that we're being intentional and following through with our actions after
0: I have often thought that history isn't a circle, but it can feel like a spiral. And we revisit like similar coordinates, but on kind of a different plane. So there's these echoes of the past. When you talk about moving from words to action, you you make me think of what I hear a lot about Generation Z. I hear that Gen Z is done with the status quo, ready to challenge and, and fight for issues that matter to them most and act and not just talk, Do you think that's true? Uh, And if so, what do you see in terms of those actions that are different among Gen Z versus other generations?
1: I think it's definitely true. I think in comparison to other generations, the majority of Gen Z is advocating and they're pushing their thoughts, beliefs out there, whether it's through social media, or locally with their community. And I think that's great. And I think just the stats we have about the youth mental health crisis. I know the Surgeon General put out a mental health crisis statement late last year. There needs to be proactive measures at all levels to ensure that young people and everybody in general have support before them reaching a crisis point. For so long, people have reached a crisis and it is not until then that they receive support. And we need to change that. We need to make sure people are getting support early on so that they don't have to go into a crisis.
0: Yeah. It feels like we can't talk about LGBTQ plus mental health without talking also about technology. I've been online for a very long time and seen some of the the best parts where folks who feel isolated, who don't have someone in their town like them, can find someone in another town like them and feel less alone. But I've also seen the bullying, the isolation, the the targeted harassment of this community as well. What would you like to see tech companies do more of or less to have the role of technology be more supportive than harmful?
1: You're talking about tech spaces here. I, I think making sure that they are... Ensuring that whether it's apps or spaces are safe for people. That could look very differently for many members. What we've seen these past years in terms of misinformation, of just attacks on communities, people go sometimes online when they can't find a safe space in their own communities or at home. So I think trying to ensure that's done is really important.
0: This show, we like to focus on action. One of our hashtags is action meets impact. Can you tell us about some of the action you're up to now, particularly with this concept of a warm line as opposed to a hotline at the Cal Hope Warm Line?
1: So I work as a regional manager for the Cal Hope Warm Line. And a warm line is meant to be a phone line where people are able to call in and get support prior to them being in a crisis. So unlike a crisis line, when people call a warm line, they're going to be connected to a peer counselor, someone who's been there before and who understand what it's like to struggle. And our peer counselors, they come from all different backgrounds and they have different experience in the mental health field. And when people call in, they're able to have an honest conversation about how they're feeling and people Like this approach, because unlike the clinical field, there isn't a hierarchy. They're able to talk to and with one another rather than at one another where you're just sharing, sharing, sharing and getting nothing back. And they are also connected to resources, whether it's a resource of a peer support program or group in their community where they're able to go in person or they're connected to how to find a therapist in their communities. So that's our approach at The Warm Line. And it's very real around the nation and a lot of people don't know about that. And I think just the more we're able to raise awareness because sometimes people can't get a therapy appointment because of insurance or because of long wait times. So the more we can use resources that are accessible to us the better we can ensure that people don't have to wait to reach a crisis point.
0: Yeah, I love that kind of preemptive, preventive position. I also like this idea that you know, I've I've talked with therapists before in my life and that can be a pretty Q&A focused kind of extractive like tell me about your traumas as yeah. opposed to the way you described a peer who's been through some version of this and there's a an, more of an exchange there. How long have you been in this role? I started working at the Warm Line in 2019. I started off
1: as a coordinator, then assistant manager, and now I'm the regional manager for the line. But what I've seen throughout it has been really incredible because there's people who reach out for the first time for mental health support. People who share how they never wanted or could acknowledge in their household that they were struggling mentally. And now they're 50, calling the Warm Line, talking about their struggles for the very first time.
0: Yeah. When you hear that story, how does that make you feel?
1: You know, it gives validation to the work and it continues pushing me and the counselors who are answering the phones through because this work can be heavy and it can be exhausting emotionally as is advocacy. Yeah. So when you hear these stories, you are reminded of your why and why you get into this work is because of that passion and purpose to support the community and Those stories are that. They are very much the the purpose of why we do this work.
0: Yeah, that's great. It's like fuel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) definitely is. In a world filled with such uh, literally devastating news every day, this is a great reminder. There's a warm line you can call, that there's kindness that you can channel and be inspired by or contribute to yourself. How do you manage your own Mental health today. I mean, it sounds like you've been on quite a journey from that two-year-old who showed up in Woodland a couple decades ago. What are your tools now? How do you assess where you're at? And how do you manage?
1: Well, one of my biggest tools now is just being honest and open, both about my struggles and how I'm feeling. I think that has changed my life tremendously compared to where I was in middle school, where I repressed everything and where I felt shame for almost every part of my being. I now feel very proud of who I am. And I feel like I'm able to share how I'm feeling with my family openly. I set boundaries. I take care of my own mental health. I try and move my body every morning. At 5 a.m., I try and exercise. I also have my own support groups, peer support, therapy. All of those things work for me.
0: What's one thing you want someone listening to this conversation to be sure they take away?
1: I want people to not feel broken for being who they are. I think our society is the one that's broken, and we are at times made to feel shame or broken for being ourselves, and that should never be the case. We should be proud of who we are, and we should embrace our light. That is what makes us who we are. That is what makes us unique. That is what makes us want to live. And if we are feeling broken and we're repressing who we are, we are not living life. We are
0: alive. And we cannot just be alive, we need to live. That's about everything right there. Uh, We have to live, not just be alive. What's one thing you want people listening to this conversation
1: to do? I want people listening to this conversation to reach out for support when they're struggling and to support those around them if they have the capacity I think that's really important. And when we do that, we create a ripple effect. We impact ourselves positively and we impact those around us to do the same with their peers and with the folks around them.
0: Mm. It's almost like we become a kind of force multiplier. Ah, huh, one. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I have so much respect for you. I'm so grateful for what you're doing in the world, the ripples you're creating. I think what stands out to me is when you said if you have the capacity, offering support too. Mm-hmm. A lot of us going through whatever we're going through, we can get stuck in our own and think of any extra effort as extra. Right? It's like outside of ourselves, but sometimes we need to get outside of ourselves to find ourselves and it seems to be a part of your journey. You know, as you were needing support, you were also offering it. And so you became that. And with a community, you know, found that for yourself. Juan, is there anything else you want to add?
1: No, just thank you again for having me on here and for having this conversation. And to again to folks out there, reach out for support if you need it and take people up into your head and show them how you're feeling. Thank you,
0: Juan Acosta. Thank you. You're listening to a podcast called Force Multiplier Action Meets Impact. Now, I'm sure you've grown to expect ads baked into your podcast, but we're going to do something a little different. To walk the walk, we've donated our ad space to the organizations that need it most organizations directly tackling today's greatest challenges be right back the biggest threat to global health isn't a virus it's injustice the same scenario the once denied life-saving hiv medication to the world's poorest countries is now on repeat with access to covid relief we must act now to get doctors and nurses on the front lines to help they need to save lives Join Red and learn how every dollar raised for the global fund results in $31 in health gains and economic returns. Visit red.org for the many ways your money and support can become a force multiplier in the fight against pandemics. Hey, I'm still Baratunde, your host for Force Multiplier, but I'm checking in with you with a little different energy because if you're listening, you like the show. And if you like the show, you might like my other show, How to Citizen, where we take citizen as a verb and find out from people practicing the ways we can shape our community by showing up, investing in relationships, understanding power, and valuing our collective selves. Check it out at howtocitizen.com or wherever you get your podcast. Yo, I am so impressed by Juan. Not just because he's annoyingly accomplished at his young age, but because he was able to open doors for so many by figuring out how to be himself. That's a radical yet simple idea, that finding our voice can be one of the most powerful things we do for ourselves and for those around us. Our next guest follows a similar pattern. Dr. Joe's Felix was so inspired by those around him, he decided to get into medicine, where he helps people in some of the most unpredictable
2: conditions. My name is Kerry Jos felix I'm 38 years old. I was born and raised in Haiti, the Caribbean. My family really believes in education, and my mother is a nurse, and also, I have an uncle who who is a doctor that we admire a lot, so I think I've been very much influenced by those two people. So I've been working with Doctors Without Borders since uh, 2016, first as a general surgeon in Haiti. And then I became the chief of the uh, surgeons in the burn center in Puerto Wentz, the capital city. So I'm part of this generation of doctors who actually had to deal with the consequences of the devastating earthquake in 80, in 2010. So I've been pretty much aware of differences in the global healthcare system in general. One of the differences is uh, access to care. For example, the number of specialists that we would find in one hospital in Ottawa, that would be more than the whole Central African Republic, for example. There is only one Central African orthopedic surgeon in the whole country. And the other orthopedic surgeon who would be working in the country are the ones brought by Doctors Without Borders. So this is one of the biggest inequities that I can notice. And also the fact that there is universal health coverage in some countries, and definitely not in a lot of other countries.
0: Dr. Felix has traveled the world both in training and in practice, but nothing actually prepares you for the stressful situations that pop up without notice.
2: I spent four months in the Congo last year, and uh, when I arrived, In May, I've been there for two weeks, and then there was that volcanic eruption in Goma, one of the biggest cities in the Congo. People had to be evacuated, so I was already there in a a smaller city about uh, 70 kilometers from Goma. So there were like thousands of people on the roads, and of course my team not only had to receive and um, shelter a lot of those people, but also we were receiving at night 10, 15, 20 people involved in car accidents. So we would come to the hospital and uh, we would have to do triage and uh, operate on some patient. So that was one of those situations that was a bit like difficult and stressful. So community will come together after crisis to help and also to take things in their own hands because the fact that we are here trying to help uh, without any kind of uh, discrimination, that brings a lot of hope to them. They feel that they are not alone. But my biggest investment, I would say, is the local staff, the local doctors, local nurses, because I, I do believe that they are the ones I mean, if they had means, they would do more to actually serve the population and help them. Doctors without borders we're bringing expertise, we bringing means, medication, experience, all of that. So they are here, they're working with us. We are helping them to help their own population and they are learning also. So that's, that was the case in Haiti, for example. I was part of the international team, which actually came to help. And that was a very uh, special experience. And I was so happy because one of the Asian surgeons who actually came to help was one of the ones that I trained. And I was so proud of that, you see what I mean? This is one of those experiences where actually we've seen what we've done being replicated to build a community and keep helping.
0: It's easy to see these crises as far removed from us especially when they happen on the other side of the world. But through his experience, he's learned that sometimes help looks similar, regardless of geography.
2: So right now, the needs may be more in the Middle East and uh, in Africa or Latin America, and nowadays Ukraine. But things may happen everywhere, anytime in the world. So it's not about them, it's us. So today is Africa or Ukraine but it can be anyone, anytime. So we should care a little bit more. No man is an island, John Donne said, right? So we have to try to stay informed and see what's going on in the world and try to see how we can help based on the needs. And also we have to be culturally sensitive because every country has their own specificities and we have to be aware of that. We have to give a hand but also respecting the dignity of the people that we are helping. So people can help in their own ways. There are people who are willing to give. So I would definitely encourage people to keep donating, but also volunteer. There are so many ways to get involved. Doctors Without Borders, this is not just about doctors and nurses. There are a lot of people with different backgrounds. No man
0: is an island. This perfectly sums up how important Dr. Felix's work is, not just to the regions he services, but to the whole world. And I can't help but think of these local doctors and nurses he references. Those that do so much, despite having so little. We all need more of that spirit. Just a pair of willing hands that want to help. I don't know about you, but after talking more with Juan and Dr. Felix, I feel like the world is a little bit smaller and a little bit more compassionate. It's not just because we're connecting from different parts of the world or across time zones. I think it's because they give me hope that the solution can be replicated, just with added sprinkles of culture and nuance, depending on what community you're serving. I also love that they both believe we can be part of the action with more than just our dollars, because our skills, time, and empathy don't have to begin and end with medicine. Sometimes compassion, the ability to listen, and the willingness to learn is more than enough to help. Are you feeling inspired and want to check out more information about the organizations we talked about in this episode? Learn more about them and how you can support their work. Go to salesforce.org slash force multiplier. Force Multiplier is a production of iHeartRadio and salesforce.org. Hosted by me, Baratunde Thurston. It's executive produced by Elizabeth Stewart. Produced by Yvonne Sheehan. Edited and mixed by James Foster. And written by Yvette Lopez. A special thanks to our guests, Dr. Carrie Joes-Felix and Juan Acosta. Listen to Force Multiplier on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.